it's all about male hysteria until they give him the fucking Oscar, right? Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now, or what was going on in the mid-90s. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good, and I'm so excited to use this <laughs> podcast called The Feminist Present to talk about movies that are 25 years old. So, Adrian, tell us a little bit about our theme for this season generally, not just this episode. We're calling it... 90s feminist movie club or film club and we're using the words 90s and feminist kind of loosely also film we're also using film very loosely <laughs> yeah we're using everything every every word in that is just kind of loose <laughs> we wanted to talk about the way the movies we kind of grew up with that came for us at a formative moment and that mm -hmm. for many of our students and some of our guests in fact came out in the years that they were born alarming how those kind of tell us about gender one of the things that i think we didn't intend but that ended up kind of happening is we were just shocked by how historic some of these mm -hmm. films mm -hmm. now feel these are movies that were primed to perceive as like kind of the beginning of some kind of modernity kind of recognizability just by dint of our own biographies. And the opposite was the case. We were like, holy shit, the 90s are a foreign country. It was wild. It was a, it was a weird ass time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we came in towards this with a lot of like deep millennial nostalgia and then created a guest roster that would expand upon that nostalgia. So it's not just people who are like 14 years old in 1998, but I am that person who was 14 years old in 1998. And I also think there's been like a much broader cultural reckoning with the sort of messaging of the 90s, especially around gender, sexuality and race. And we've seen the reconsideration of certain figures, you know, from the OJ universe on You're Wrong About and people like Monica Lewinsky and people in the sort of Clinton universe. We've seen a lot of broad reconsideration of those figures from the 90s. And so coming at this as we do, as people who are nerds for gender, we started thinking about what are these really mixed cultural messages about gender coming out of popular culture in the 90s and where do they come from? And of course... That led us to Leonardo DiCaprio, which is who we will be deep diving today. Okay, so why did it lead us to Leonardo DiCaprio? Because I'm not clear on this. <laughs> I love that you just signed up for the ride. I mean, I'm, I'm along for the ride, but I am a little bit like, to stick with the 90s metaphor, I'm a little bit like, you know, Gina Davis looking over at Susan Sarandon <laughs> and asking, are you sure? Right before you hit the gas and we go off that cliff. Right, right. Why right. are we going over this cliff? Well, much like Susan Sarandon, I'm going to present a lot of confidence that I know where I'm going while storing some secrets in my trunk. So I think where the spark of this consideration began for me was there was some Twitter chatter a couple months ago about Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet that included just a lot of people our age talking about how much this film meant to them. And as I was looking at it and the sort of iconic shot of like Leo on the beach that sparked so many like adolescent girl libidos, mine included, I was like, that is the girliest man I have ever seen in my life. From my personal autobiographical POV, when I was 14, I was wondering if I was a lesbian. And I was looking at Leonardo DiCaprio being like, there is a man that I am certainly attracted to. And now I look back and I'm like... No, I think I was a lesbian if I was attracted to Leonardo DiCaprio in the mid-90s. Mm. So this made me start reconsidering sort of like who his cultural persona was in this formative era of his career. And I started kind of like narrowing my historical research and being like, okay, what are the years where there was like a real turning point in his career? And I started narrowing in on 1993 to 1998, beginning with This Boy's Life and ending with Titanic. My thesis, which I will attempt to convince you of today, Adrian, is that those are the years in which Leo, or at least the people who packaged Leo in Hollywood, turned him from a child star into a heartthrob, not just teen idol, but like adult male star. So essentially, in my contention, 1993 to 1998 is what makes a man out of Leo. <laughs> How does that sit with you? What does that make you think of? 
Yeah, I mean, he definitely undergoes a kind of transformation from a River Phoenix knockoff yes. to Icicle, I guess, sort of by the end of that. Mm-hmm. Chivalrously, chivalrically? I don't know. No idea. Giving up his space on that weird piece of Titanic flotsam that obviously would have held two people. I mean, come on, Leo. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. That makes sense to me. I guess, so to date myself, I am a little bit older and the kinds of... Hollywood actors that did spark that kind of thing for me were a mm-hmm. little bit earlier. And so the thing that really came up for me during the first part of this retrospective is what makes him different from a whole crop of kind of, mm-hmm. let's say, somewhat girlishly read teen hunks from yeah. the 90s. I'm thinking like River Phoenix, Edward Furlong, right? Like mm-hmm. who all have this kind of very 90s hair that like, mm-hmm. that does sort of scream your first lesbian crush, right? I mean, somewhat older, but like the movie that perfects this and the most wonderful hair movie for my money in the 90s is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where everyone just has like the most bananas haircuts. Carrie Elways is also another perfect example of this archetype. But in that one, it's uh, Christian Slater who has just like so much 90s hair. It's just like, it it does the acting. Where is Carrie Elways? What am I confusing him with? Is he in the other Robin Hood movie? Like the serious one? No, he's in Robin Hood Men in Tights, maybe. Oh, he is. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. Men in Tights. Thank you. The Thank Mel Brooks you. version. Yes. No, no, the Kevin Costner Thank one. Thank you. Yeah. With the Brian Adams song and all of the hair. Like, Costner has a mullet. The Sheriff Nottingham has, like, sort of late glam rock yeah. kind of curls. But, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I want to hear what makes Leo more than just a product of the kind of Hollywood machine, what makes him actually kind of central to the story, which is not to say I'm not convinced, but that is the thing I, I want to hear about. No, I think that's a really good question, because I think on one level, he is absolutely a product of the Hollywood machine. And as we talk about these films, we will see the very calculated way in which he was packaged to emerge from the Hollywood machine. But if I were to just answer that question from personal opinion, I think it's range, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I think what we also see in this crop of films that we're going to discuss today is a tremendous amount of range that we never see from contemporaries who are his co-stars in these films, like Mark Wahlberg, like Tobey Maguire, who's a pretty crucial foil to the whole Leo phenomenon. Mm-hmm. We don't see those actors, you know, River Phoenix, maybe if he had lived long enough, right. but we didn't get to see that from him. We got to see a little bit of it from Johnny Depp, who is another co-star of Leo's in this era. Yeah. But that that too ends in disasters. Also a lot of hair. Ends in a lot of hair. Yeah. Crucial hair point. Yes. So I would argue that I think what propels Leo beyond them in a career way is a combination of talent, of versatility, of excellent packaging, and of those things combining to avoid disaster. And again, we will see that some of those avoidances of disaster, as with the canceled film Don's Plum, Some of those avoidances were extremely, extremely calculated. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited too. So I know the origin story here a little bit. He'd had a couple of bit parts and then... De Niro handpicks him for this boy's life, right? I believe that is the case, yes. So I should say, based on the memoir of our Stanford colleague, Toby Wolf, mm-hmm. I had to read this in high school. I hadn't seen the movie since I watched it in high school to avoid reading the book. So that's my background here. <laughs> True confessions. <laughs> and, and as someone, sorry, Toby, and as someone who sort of didn't encounter this in the theaters, tell me what... Is this Hollywood machine or is this De Niro trying to branch out and doing something independent? Because it it's kind of on the bubble, right? On the one hand, it feels very kind of like a crowd pleaser. You know, it has incredible actors in it. On the other hand, it is a kind of deliberately minor film. And De Niro seems to have liked it because the main male antagonist almost really or just the central figure is just really complicated and kind of an asshole but like in an interesting and generative way is that already hollywood machine or is this beginnings an independent film how would you where would you put that? You know, I don't have a ton of sophisticated insight on like what the behind the scenes origin of the film were. I will say looking at its specs of like when it was filmed, who funded it and how much it was made for, which is about 4 million, I can say with confidence that this is exactly the kind of character-driven drama that Hollywood simply does not fund today and that now really right. stands out. I think this was a pretty like mid-list movie, you know, like I don't mm-hmm. think this was especially either super grassroots level indie movie nor a huge Titanic-sized star production. I think it was just the sort of mid-list movie that people made in the 90s. So maybe that's a cop-out and I just don't know. The reason I'm thinking about it is like when Jennifer Lawrence first tried, like I I think Jennifer Lawrence might kind of be redoing Leonardo DiCaprio's 
career like 10 years later. She is a very good analog to him. Yes, yes. And with that one, right, like Winter's Bone is this like so de-glammed and so independent. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, holy shit, Jennifer Lawrence can act. I know that he got really good notices for this, but like, was it like, I, I don't know, where does this live? Is this like off the map? So that's a question I somewhat do know more of the answer to. So Leo comes to this. This is a really crucial turning point for him. This is his first big movie, you know, to be released in theaters. And he's coming to it off a like 23 episode stint in Growing Pains, which is a very popular sitcom that he came to somewhere in the late seasons, I can't say authoritatively, but he's coming in very much as like a sort of featured supporting player on this network sitcom, right? This was a huge platform for him. Like Growing Pains was definitely what both introduced him to the movie makers of Hollywood and what introduced him to a group of other young Hollywood actors who he would remain really close with throughout some of these films. Tobey Maguire is one of those people. We will not utter the name of their posse on this podcast. Oh, we're going to be talking about the pussy posse for sure. This Boy's Life marks the first on-screen collaboration between DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire. It is not actually when they meet on the set of This Boy's Life. They met, and this is sort of in the folklore of the Pussy Posse, they met way before that on auditions for child actors, and they both had single moms, and that's how Maguire and DiCaprio become friends. But so This Boy's Life, I think the significance for Leo's career is this is when he makes the like small screen to big screen jump. He is the central figure. He is the title, you know, character the narrator, the protagonist of this movie, unlike a supporting player. Not to mention he was handpicked by De Niro, as yeah. you say, and he shares all of his screen time with De Niro and Ellen Barkin, which I just can't even imagine what a dream that must have been for a young actor. He's like 19 when he's making this movie. He looks much younger. And I think that's also crucial to examine in this sort of like mercurial quality that Leo's career has during this time is he looks a lot younger than he is, which is an advantage. Yeah, in... holy shit, he was 19? He was 19. He's born in 1974. Oh yeah. And I think this is a crucial thing to emphasize about him is, I think this happens to a lot of child actors, it behooves them for a while for them to look younger than they do because they can be over 18 playing younger parts, which is advantageous for producers who want to avoid, you know, child labor right. laws that require minor actors to only be on set for shorter amounts of time. But then you have to make this leap into adult roles. And as we know, like a lot of child stars never are really able to make that career leap. So I think that this boy's life is a really crucial juncture where he's, like I said, moving from small screen to big screen. He's still in a child role, but it's a very substantial child role that in giving him screen time with these incredible actors kind of forces him to hold his own with them, you know, and be sort of equated with them in a way that I think significantly, like, elevates his currency in Hollywood. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I must admit, I had no idea he was that old when he made that yeah, movie. Yeah, he looks so much, he's so baby-faced. The whole point of it is that it's a story of a boy coming into his own masculinity and, like, it's kind of... It's kind of amazing for that to be portrayed by a 19-year-old. And of course, I mean, like now I'm kind of doing the math that like the next three years, right, is what's Eating Gilbert Grape, Basketball Diaries, mm -hmm. Quick and the Dead, where he plays a character named The Kid, mm -hmm. right? Like, and then Marvin's Room, where he plays a kid. Mm -hmm. Like, he was kind of subscribed on roles that are like mid-teens at best, right. right? Right. I guess Arnie and what's Eating Gilbert Grape is supposed to be 18. I think there's a mention right. of his 18th birthday. Right. But like, just jumping ahead a tiny bit, well, I guess two movies that we're never going to talk about of his one mode that DiCaprio has in his let's say in the, the last 10 years 15 years sort of his post Titanic as Scorsese collaborations is like a particular kind of male hysteria right like think of mm -hmm. his Jordan Belfort mm -hmm. right like this kind of like the the Leo who just acts the living fuck out of something you know always like red faced and swollen and whatever which is a kind of a story about aging and it's funny that like he started in this kind of timelessness mm -hmm. at the beginning mm -hmm. of his career when you train your scholarly queer gaze on the sort of sexuality and masculinity that's portrayed in this boy's life, what comes up for you or what is noticeable to you? Well, some of it has to do with the category of age, right? Like it's a movie about father figures. It's a movie about figuring out what kind of a person you want to be, which in that movie very much means what kind of a man you want to be, I think. Mm -hmm. And a particular kind of man, right? Like a man who likes women. Yeah, exactly. So there is this kind of unreflective centering of heterosexuality and mm -hmm. a very particular man 
mainstream kind of masculinity. That's right. right? While the mother figure is drawn, I think, with a great deal of sympathy, she's just not where the action is, right? She's an onlooker mm-hmm. to a tussle, you know, around, as the title mm-hmm. says, uh, this boy's life. It's the question of what kind of a man, in brackets, who likes women, this kid's going to be. Yeah, I found it interesting, too, in two specific dimensions. One, the De Niro character, who is his stepfather in the film, represents, as you said, extremely traditional to the point of, like, it comes off as so abusive now, kind of 1950s nuclear family fatherhood, you know? But you get intimations from the very beginning of his appearance on screen of, like, what a narcissist this character is and how afraid his own children are of him and, you know, where the hell did his first wife go that he's suddenly single now? And, like, the movie plants a lot of red flags early on. Yeah, the Nero's, I think, really good at showing that how much insufficiency and self-doubt is at the heart of that character too. Well, and that's why he comes off as narcissistic to me is he's exercising so much control, but in a way that is all executed to hide his like howling insecurity, right? And his, his need to be propped up by these people who like provide him with what is called narcissistic supply, right? And uh, so we see De Niro constantly bearing down on DiCaprio as this sort of like, don't be a sissy, you know, I'm going to beat the sissy out of you kind of father figure. And then on the peer side, we see Leonardo DiCaprio's character kind of trying to figure out which kinds of friends he wants to have. You know, does he want to hang out with the roughnecks who kind of like say really like crass things and cause all kinds of trouble? Or does he want to be friends with the like gentle piano playing, obviously gay kid who lives down the street? Mm -hmm. And I was really curious what you made of that gay character and his relationship with DiCaprio's character. Yeah, it's a good question. The movie never, I thought, or 90s movie surprisingly never felt the need to dispel any suggestion, which right. I thought was right. was interesting. At the same time, I you know I think that if the movie were made today, you probably wouldn't have a gay character or or a mother character be so obviously reduced as kind of a waypoint. This has a kind of a Bildungsroman quality, right? Like these people all matter to the main story of how this kid becomes who he is. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a whole lot of... Dimensionality beyond that. They are their functions, you know. He's sort of a magical fairy in that sense. Exactly. I mean, like in, in yeah. some way, similar to Billy Elliot, which is the other movie where like, mm. there's a kind of gay kid thrown in just to like... Mm-hmm kind of vouch for the heterosexuality of the central character but like ultimately is given very little in the way of of an arc of his own you know it's funny as you were talking i was just like okay so what are the gay politics like more broadly in the country at this moment and i'm like hmm, when did don't ask don't tell go into effect and it was 1993 it was exactly this year like right around the time this movie came out a couple months later don't ask don't tell comes out and that feels very related to what you're saying yeah i mean it's also a moment where if there is homosexuality in a movie, it's a gay movie. Mm-hmm. DiCaprio mm-hmm. will later subvert that very, very well a few years later. But in 93, clearly he couldn't have or he didn't want to yet. But there is definitely an element there where if you're going to make an independent film and there's even a suggestion of queerness, it's the difference between an art house theater and mm-hmm. playing at the mm-hmm. multiplex. Hollywood is still very clear on which side the toast is buttered on. You know, I think the other thing that really strikes me about the De Niro character in that movie is this is already well into kind of, as far as I recall, into De Niro's kind of head bopping kind of slightly ticky phase what is his head bopping ticky phase like you know the shtick that would sort of culminate in those movies where he's the mobster getting analyzed by billy crystal where de niro starts doing that's later in the 90s yeah yeah but but he's on his way to becoming a basically a de niro parody Mm -hmm. but what this character recalls is much more travis bickle and i did kind of think of it as you know again the narcissism the raging insecurity Mm -hmm. this kind of blustery masculinity that thinks it hides a whole lot more than it manages and it it made me really think you know Mm -hmm. this is the movie between two scorsese muses and kind of a baton relay between one kind of beleaguered masculinity and then like with dicaprio a totally different kind of beleaguered masculinity Mm -hmm. much much less at least until he gets sort of into the departed the departed years i feel like one that is a lot less 
sort of about these needled insecurities, but it's actually just more more fluid in some way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would place this boy's life right between Goodfellas and Casino in mm-hmm. De Niro's like mobster careers. So yes, that chimes in with what you're saying. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll get to this when we talk about the Basketball Diaries. But one thing that jumped out to me rewatching the Basketball Diaries is how like half of the cast of The Sopranos is in it because it was yeah. filmed in New York right around the same time as The Sopranos pilot. So I think we'll We'll see the interchange of these sort of mob casts with DiCaprio's world multiple times. Did you have any feelings, and then I want to move on to Gilbert Grape, but like, did you have any feelings like De Niro's character was being coded as closeted? I was wondering about that. I... I didn't read it that way, but I had a moment of suspicion, yes, whether that was what they were trying to say. I thought that there was a whole darker story that I kind of felt like was lurking under the surface. I wasn't quite sure whether the movie didn't dare tell it or just didn't feel like telling it, right? About the stepfather? Or what do you mean by darker story under the surface? Yeah, about child abuse, right? Yeah, yeah. Why are his kids so afraid of him? Yeah, I did <laughs> yeah. think that. I kind of credited the movie with not going there. Mm-hmm. I do think the point that parents can mess you up pretty bad. In some way, someone who just messes with your mind can be extremely debilitating, right? Like, yeah. I do think that like there is some kind of 90s shorthand I guess I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but this is like all the things about their childhoods that the people in Flatliners learn about themselves or like remember. Hmm. Remember that movie? Barely. Right? They all die and then they all like get haunted by figures in their past. And it's all like, you know, the kid we ran over with the car, the, you know, <laughs> my dad dying of a heroin overdose in the bathtub. And it's like, you know, ugh, fuck this. Like, it doesn't always be that. And I actually like the way this movie kind of says like, you know, small bore stuff like this does shape what a person is like. Yeah. But it, it did feel like it was on the verge of like, holy shit, is it going to be this kind of movie several times? Totally. I agree with you that I'm not fully committed to like a closeted queer reading of De Niro's character, but like you, it hinted at it for me just because he's so angry, you know, like the sublimated rage, Mm. its connection to masculinity, the like absolutely brutal rape scene where he has ambiguously consensual sex with his wife, Ellen Barkin, on their wedding night while their children are in the house, super normal, and is like right. super aggressive about like he only does it from behind and that's how she can get it in this house, I believe is that line. Um, certainly straight people have sex from behind and like that happens all the time, but there was something about the aggressiveness of his assertion in that scene that I felt offered itself. It's like I'm learning a lot here. <laughs> Spoiler alert! Did not know this. (laughs) I felt like that scene offered itself to a potential queer reading if a critic were motivated in that direction. It wouldn't be a surprising trope for 1993. Of course, a pretty noxious one, right? The idea that, you know, we might explain that for our listeners that, like, any gay basher in a movie, right, think of uh, infamously of American Beauty, that any violent masculinity suddenly being chalked up to suppressed homosexuality, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. tends to deny the violence inherent in heterosexual masculinity and tends to make it the problem of yet another minority community. So yeah, it'd be interesting to think about that. Mm -hmm. Preach. Okay, so what is eating Gilbert Grape? What is eating Gilbert Grape? What is eating Gilbert Grape, Adrian? I, I don't actually know. I was watching it. I was like, what, what's eating this dude? This is such an obviously adapted from a novel movie. Did that stick out to you on this viewing? I mean, that did. And it's by Lasse Hallstrom, right? Who like is one of these European directors who just kind of seems to just like grind their way through a particular shelf at your local Barnes and Noble or whatever. I knew you were going to have things to say about Lassie Hallstrom. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's just like all these things like based on like other properties and I have to say that for a movie adapted from a novel, I didn't hate the narration that much. I felt it was mm. it was mm-hmm. pointless, but like on a scale from zero to now and then, I would say it's. it's I was on just going to say that. it's kind of on a it's on a more more reasonable level. That definitely struck me. I also felt that it sought to walk a fine line between empathy and condescension that you know Mm -hmm, i think mm -hmm. is still very much with us it's it's very interesting Mm -hmm. that like if this boy's life is a story that hollywood has learned how to tell a whole lot better 
I don't know whether when it comes to these kind of heartland stories, like I've not seen Nomadland. I've heard it's quite good, but certainly I can tell you that Hillbilly Elegy didn't do, you know, didn't move much beyond where was eating Gilbert Grape was at Mm -hmm. in 1993. Getting back to what you were saying about Lassie Hallstrom, I was just like refreshing my memory on his career and we'll definitely get back to the fine line between empathy and condescension because that was like super prominent for me in this rewatch. I think it's fun to note that Lassie Hallstrom came to prominence as a director by directing music videos for ABBA. He did. And then, you know, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Director for My Life as a Dog, which is how he rose to more prominence and I think probably how he got the funding to make a small character-driven movie like What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And then proceeded to do, like, the twinkliest, Miramaxiest movies of the 90s. Very Miramax. Cider House Rules starring Tobey Maguire, I will also note. Yes, an unbearable film to watch during the pandemic I have tried. And then, what's it called? Uh, Chocolat. Chocolat with Johnny Depp. Yeah. Maybe the most... Yes. I mean, that movie just... You've heard of 90s phony European prestige picture. Well, this goes 90s phony <laughs> European prestige picture all over everyone's ass. I mean, it's like, it's like you know, like... Let's put it this way. At least Netflix, when it comes up with stuff like this, it's an algorithm that came up with it, right? You're like, they didn't have computers good enough to come up with this, but like it feels like it was like created by an algorithm. It's like, fuck it, people love chocolate, France, France. Johnny Depp, empowerment narratives, slight fairy tale allegories, like, you know, vaguely historical setting, narration, child actors. Fuck it, let's give them all this. It's so funny because I'm trying to apply the like faux European prestige lens to what's eating guilt. Grape, and it's a distinctly Americana setting, but the schema of what you're proposing kind of applies. Like, it's just as quirky, it's just as character-driven, it's just, right. it's very low to the ground, you know, in its sort of plot aspirations, right? <laughs> but sorry, I'm going to be giggling about that for a while. Yeah, it may well fall into the footsteps of European filmmakers sort of in love with, like, with Americana, right? I mean, I yes. think of people like Vim Vendors, Antonioni, and people like that. I don't want to get all film school on you, but it has that, right? Like the fact that it's filmed in Texas and like, and it's supposed to be in Iowa and you're like... I had an axe to grind with that like Texas going as Iowa. That felt... I certainly can't say that that's European in a way that a director from LA wouldn't do the same thing because they absolutely do. But I was like, this is distinctly Texas to me. This is not Iowa. Right. I have spent time in both of those places. Yeah. And at the same time, of course, like the Academy Awards and whatever were pretty ready to give awards to those kinds of filmmakers when they were like, you know, mumbly people standing in front of the Grand Canyon or like, but like if it's like an American production, it's like, well, this is so hacky. It's like, well, this is the other thing is hacky too. You realize that, right? Hi team. It's me, Laura, just cutting in real quick. In the section you're listening to right now in our do retrospective part one. When I was describing What's Eating Gilbert Grape and the character that Leonardo DiCaprio plays in that film, I used the term intellectually disabled. And as I listened to the rough cut, I really wish I had used the term neurodivergent, which I understand is kind of the preferred term by those in the disability justice community who are our friends. So please accept this subtle correction. Thank you so much. So I'm Very glad you brought up the Academy Awards, because I think that is a crucial sort of vector to drive into this conversation. So one thing that I thought was interesting as I was doing some of my timelining of like when these movies were filmed, when they came out, who was in them, etc. So I think that What's Eating Gilbert Grape was devised as a like major star vehicle for Johnny Depp, who was like near the peak of his career at this point, right? He's still very much Hollywood's golden boy. What I noticed is that this film is released in December 1993 and then more widely in March 1994. And the year before that, 1992, Johnny Depp also, like Leonardo DiCaprio does in Gilbert Grape, in Benny and June, Johnny Depp stars as an intellectually disabled character who has like a love story. It's a really charming movie. I'm a big fan of Benny and June. And I wonder, this is hypothetical, but I wonder if... Johnny Depp was like, okay, I can't play another intellectually disabled character. I'm going to be the heartthrob in Gilbert Grape. Like, this newcomer is going to be the intellectually disabled character. But what happens is Leonardo DiCaprio is so fucking good in this movie that he steals every scene that he's in. Johnny Depp comes off, I think, as really cardboard in comparison to how dynamic DiCaprio is. And what does DiCaprio do? He's the one who walks away with the Oscar nomination for What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And that, I think, is absolutely crucial 
as a turning point in his stardom. Like, I think the Oscar nomination is what puts him on a map as, like, a hot young actor in Hollywood. And that role will also provide some things that he has to overcome, I think. But I think the Oscar nomination is really, really crucial in this part of the chronology. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of DiCaprio's performance in this film? It's hard, right? On the one hand, I think technically... It's really tricky. It's accomplished, right? Like, you can understand what people saw in it. At the same time, and I'm not going to quote it, but it is hard not to hear the the admonition that the Robert Downey Jr. character gives to the Ben Stiller character in Tropic Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> There's a wisdom in casting people with the actual disability in those roles. Yeah. And DiCaprio makes yeah. a good case for himself as an actor and a great case for not doing that ever again because Agreed. it's uncomfortable, I think. It is uncomfortable. I was really curious how this film would rewatch in 2021. I would say there were two vectors of discomfort for me in the 2021 rewatch and DiCaprio's performance was the lesser of the two. I'll start with that. I agree with you. It's very uncomfortable given the discussions we've had, you know, in recent years progressively about especially people from marginalized communities being represented accurately and fairly and with the authority that comes from being a part of that community. For my money, I think it's an uncomfortable performance, but it's incredibly consistent. You know, like I will say that he creates a performance that he stays in for the whole movie. And it's not... I. I can see how people would disagree with me if I say it's not a caricature. Like, I think reasonable people can disagree on that. I personally don't think it's a caricature. Well, what it isn't is a bag of ticks. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's a consistent, it's a performance. Yes, yes. And one can have problems with that, but it isn't sort of intermittent in any way. That's what I mean. Feels lived in. Yes, exactly. Yes, it feels lived in. And he's also incredibly dynamic and watchable. And that's not to the point of whether it's okay for non-disabled actors to play disabled roles. That's separate to this. But I just think that DiCaprio's natural charisma really infuses this role and makes him incredibly dynamic and watchable and, and appealing. You know, like, I think he's a very appealing, endearing character in a way that testifies to DiCaprio's talent. What I was going to say is what ages much less, like even less well to me is the fat politics of the movie and the center point of this mother being very, very overweight and how she's treated as not just a spectacle, but like a pariah, you know, like they have constructed an entire life to sort of cater to her as the house falls apart around her. And then in the end, they cremate her in the house, which I think in the construction of the story is meant to indicate the children treating the mother with like dignity or wanting her to be treated with dignity. But the fat politics of the movie are so cringy in the current discourse. Yeah, it's a surprising kind of turn for a movie too that in some way is so bending over backwards on according its characters this dignity and then sort of Mm -hmm. seems to endorse their shame Mm -hmm. around some of these questions. Mm -hmm. That's well said, yes. That, That seems like a strange strange assumption to make at that point and it kind of doesn't do the movie any favors mm-hmm. the movie kind of naturalizes it that shame yes. and i think that's kind of that's pretty weird mm-hmm. yeah like overall it's an incredibly warm-hearted movie that i think the viewing experience of it is more endearing than you would expect it to be if you just read a description yeah. of the plot you know you can tell that on screen johnny depp kind of just gets this straight man role yes exactly and he feels kind of frozen in place by just all this the quirkiness happening around him Mm -hmm. i I kind of wondered whether like behind that pretty face it's like this is the last fucking time that's ever going to happen to me i'm going to jack sparrow it up for the next 25 years You know who Leo lost to, by the way, at the Oscars? No, tell me. Another fable of beleaguered masculinity, but one that I think our colleagues over at Why Our Dads probably have to tackle rather than us. Oh? The Fugitive. He lost to Tommy Lee Jones. Really? Al Gore's college roommate? That's right. Yes. The other nominations were 
Ray Fiennes as Amon Good in Schindler's List, John Malkovich as the crazy potential presidential assassin in The Line of Fire. Damn it, I thought you were going to say Conair. Go ahead. Oh, that would be a little bit later, as Cyrus, Cyrus the Virus. Yes, thank you. And Pete Postlethwaite in The Name of the Father. Indeed. It's a very dad-heavy group. Another future co-star of DiCaprio's. That's right. That's good research, Professor. I enjoy knowing that. I mean, I think that, like, so, like I said, I think the Academy Award nomination is probably the most crucial part of, like, the through line of Leo's career and like where this movie figures into that. But I also think it sets him up with a unique kind of conundrum that very much informs his next two films in much the same way as we were just talking about Johnny Depp. And this is one of the things that I found most difficult about this rewatch of the film. They infantilize him so much, you know, this intellectually disabled character, like really both DiCaprio's performance and the way everyone around him on screen treats him really reminded me of like my seven-year-old, you know, Mm. like it was, it seemed like the age of the performance DiCaprio was giving was about like a young elementary school kind Mm. of brain age. Let's pretend we came back from commercial break. What, uh, what are his next movies? So good point. So I think that what's eating Gilbert Grape, I hypothesize is where he's like, no more kid roles. Like I can't do kids anymore, right? Like I can't, do either actual children or people who are being treated like children. So next he does really back to back. We were just talking about this before we started recording. So I started like getting real stalker and looking into like not just the release dates of these films, but when exactly they were filmed. So in very close succession, he does The Quick and the Dead and he does Basketball Diaries. And The Quick and the Dead was filmed from late November 1993 to late February 94. Basketball Diaries was filmed from late March 94 to May 94. Mm. Quick and the Dead is released in February. 95. Basketball Diaries premieres at Sundance in January 95 and then it has wide release in 95. So 95 is a huge year for Leonardo to like huge, 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 huge year. He doesn't do anything like What's Eating Gilbert Grape is in release in 1994, but he doesn't have another film released in 1994. He has these two big ones that he's working on for 1995. So I have a lot to say about the Basketball Diaries and I could barely get through The Quick and the Dead. So take me away, Professor Dab, on The Quick and the Dead. Like what strikes you about this movie? So this is an interesting one. It's another one where he plays the kid, right? Mm -hmm. Who's like trying to bone Sharon Stone, who is my 90s screen idol. I mean, Sharon Stone is like perfect in every way, but go on. So I was shocked to find out this was a 1995 film, Mm -hmm. to be honest, because it feels between Sharon Stone and like Gene Hackman kind of continuing just to act it feels like he mm-hmm. walked off the set of For Unforgiven, basically. <laughs> Truly bizarre kind of film. Peopled with folks that you think kind of had their heyday a little bit earlier than that. And then people who were going to become huge later on, right? So it's directed by Sam Raimi, who would mm-hmm. make Tobey Maguire to a superstar in the Spider-Man movies, not three or four years later. You know, it stars Russell Crowe, right? Who was sort of just at the beginning of his career. Casino comes out later this year in 1995 too. Casino, which Sharon Stone has like a major That's right. in. And it's got DiCaprio, right? And I believe parts of the screenplay were written by Joss Whedon. This is like sort of where the 90s meet, right? Like the early and the late 90s are kind of having a duel in that film. Oh yeah, Gary Sinise is in here coming off Forrest Gump. Yeah, totally. Right? It's a 90s as fuck movie, um, basically. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, It's also like their attempt to kind of do an Italo Western, right? Or spaghetti Western. It's clearly inspired by Sergio Leone, Mm -hmm. while at the same time kind of anticipating the kind of camera work and editing that I think would become more characteristic of kind of comic book movies later on. Mm. For Sergio Leone, pastiche, it's astonishingly hyperactive, Mm -hmm. hyperkinetic, Mm -hmm. when it doesn't tend to have a whole lot of these gorgeous, you know, huge compositions that these Italian directors were so fond of, and that often gave their films this kind of expensive look, even though they were put together fairly cheaply. Uh, somewhere in the Spanish desert. I think that this movie already kind of telegraphs aesthetics that would become uh, definitive for Hollywood 10 years later. And I think it rewatches pretty well mm-hmm. on account of that. You wouldn't be shocked to find out that movie was made in 2004 or something like that. The only thing that gives it away is that it has a kind of gold hue that feels very mid-90s WB, basically. Mm-hmm. So the filters are the only mm-hmm. thing that gives mm-hmm. that away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sergio Leone directs for the WB is a perfect, perfect encapsulation of the quick and the dead. Yes. It feels like, you know, like (laughs) Ali McBeal could show up any moment, basically. I love it. 
I love this. Yes. Yeah. And so, but it's once again, DiCaprio stuck in that kind of kid role. She wanted him for that role. I believe she paid a salary for this movie. Like she wanted him so badly for this. Yeah. She's, I'm seeing that Sharon Stone picked Sam Raimi. Yeah. Oh no, she picked Leo too. Oh, I see. And really wanted him to be part of this, uh-huh. which is weird. I mean, compared to Gilbert Grape, this is not that plum a gig, frankly. He seems all right. It's an all right part. Well, so in terms of the quality of the part, I completely agree with you. As I look at the higher level specs for the film, this yeah. is by far the biggest budget film he's done so far. This is $35 million as opposed to like we're seeing like $3 million for his previous films. So I have to imagine it came with an appealing paycheck and a chance at prominence with the co-stars he was assigned right. as well. Let's put it this way. The story about trauma in that movie is Sharon Stone's, mm-hmm. right? Part of the fun of that movie is imagining what, let's say, the Clint Eastwood, Man With No Name, would have looked like if it had starred a woman. The disappointments of the film is that essentially it's literally just gender flipped. Yeah. Out for revenge. It was about her dad. Always revenge with those ladies. Yeah, and, and it's like basically she's kind of a 90s, I would say kind of phallic woman character where there's just like the only way they can write her is to like take a male character and like change nothing else exactly. right like it, it doesn't yes, feel exactly it's feminist in the most kind of formal and most threadbare way it's oceans eight directed by sergio leone for the yeah, wb yeah. let's let's put it that way yeah yeah so, so that's the quick and the dead i'm happy to answer any questions about it but i'd like to hear about the basketball diaries another memoir right like yes okay. leo, that's the other thing that we haven't talked about yet that leo seems to be like loves a memoir the specialist for like playing real people in their stories. Interesting, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I'm glad you had such intelligent things to say about The Quick and the Dead because you took it much more seriously than I did and I fucked up that part of the assignment. It just bored me. Like, I just didn't get into the movie at all when I tried to watch it, but, like, that's on me. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of candy to look at. I'm sorry. It's just, it's true. It's, it's a, and it's a fine-looking film. And, and Sam Raimi, I don't know. I guess I don't think he can really put together a boring film, but it's... I don't know. It's uninvolving in a way that some 90s action cinema kind of is, like where you just, it feels stakeless and kind of predictable. That's, that was my problem with it. That plus the two-dimensional construction of the Sharon Stone character, because yeah, Sharon yeah. Stone deserves all of the wonderful things in the world. I love her so much. And then again, again, of course, Spaghetti Western is not the place Mm-mm. to expand, like more than I dislike the fact that she's been given this kind of stereotypical backstory is that she was giving a backstory at all. Right. Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. they really wanted to go through with the, you know, with the female Clint Eastwood, just don't explain it. Just, you know, right. that, right. like right. Leone would have been like, yeah, you figure it out. He hates this guy for, for a reason. Totally. You know, the end. Right. Like, why can't you just hate Gene Hackman <laughs> when they like murder his ass? I mean, he's a, Preach. he's a total bastard. Preach. Oh God, he's what's the great line in the Royal Tenenbaum? It's not not a bastard so much. He's more of a son of a bitch. That's right. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, so like as I look at the scope of his filmography up until this point, like I said a minute ago, I can see why a big budget western is an interesting diversion from the like very small character driven stories he's done so far. Also, this boy's life and what's eating Gilbert Grape are both very much family stories, mm-hmm. as fucked up as the families are. Very much family stories intended for multi generation audiences. Quick and the Dead is a pretty adult movie, you know? Then we go to The Basketball Diaries. So as you say, this is another memoir. DiCaprio clearly has an affection for memoirs. And this is not just any memoir. This is a poet's memoir, right? So like, you know, there's going to be drugs. Like, it's real gritty. Like, this is so gritty. Gritty is like the only possible word for this film. Yeah. I noted during my research, this was eventually distributed by New Line Cinema, which was a pretty big player in this like rising indie scene of the mid-90s. But this is also a script that had been bouncing around for a long time. Like, people had really been wanting to make this movie, and it took a long time to land in the right hands and get into production. But so this is a huge star turn for DiCaprio. Like, this is a really big, as indie and small budget as it is, this goes back to a 2.4 million budget. This is a movie that premieres at Sundance just as Sundance is becoming a player in indie distribution and exposure, and it makes a splash. Like, this is the first... 
it's hard to say. I know I knew about This Boy's Life, like, back in the day, but this is the movie that I really remember kind of putting him on the map as yeah. someone who was sexy, you know? Like, it's a very... There's a lot of sex in the movie. Some of it is really fucked up, some of it is really hot, but he is a sexual being in this movie for the first time, and he hasn't really been a sexual being in any of his previous roles. He kind of had, like, a minute of trying to hit on Sharon Stone in The Quick and the Dead, but, like, right. she doesn't take him that seriously. He's the kid, right? It's puppy love. It's puppy, puppy love. Puppy yeah. exactly. So he's playing a high schooler in this movie, so technically it's another teen role, but it's a teen role that moves very quickly from basketball to heroin, right? And it becomes sort of the peak of this, like, heroin cinema of the 90s and also features Juliette Lewis, who he was also co-starring with in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Like I said earlier, like, half the cast of The Sopranos is in here. Lorraine right. Bracco plays his mother. Michael Imperioli plays his friend with cancer at the beginning there's like a small cameo by Vinnie Pastor all kinds of Sopranos people because this is also filmed in New York right around the same time the Sopranos pilot is filmed but like what stood out to you on this rewatch like how does this film sit with you I remembered it being relentlessly grim and it is relentlessly grim it is relentlessly grim yes I saw this I believe when it first came out Mm -hmm. I found it I mean I wouldn't have used that as a 14 or 15 year old but I found it maudlin and overly like (laughs) Mm -hmm. just kind of wallowing in its own boundary pushing in some way. Mm, But mm -hmm. that's before I saw, you know, Jared Leto try to shake Jordan Catalano by by doing uh, (laughs) Requiem for a Dream. So, Oh yeah, Fight Club and Requiem for a Dream, yeah. Compared to that, uh, it feels actually fairly restrained, uh, right? And this is a very, I think this is a comparable movie to Requiem for a Dream in more ways than one. You know, like they're both drug films, obviously, but I also find Requiem for a Dream like almost unwatchable in its unbearable grimness, as much as I respect the craft and the performance behind it and the other thing is that you know it's hard to rewatch the movie and disentangle it from its very again i, mean, I don't want to sort of harp on the 90s of all this i mean they, they were made in the 90s obviously they're gonna mm-hmm. wear that on their sleeve it became infamous for a sequence where the character of jim carroll basically fantasizes about a school shooting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that became mm-hmm. you know given that the 90s were obsessed with finding the reasons for school shootings in places other than the abundance of handguns, mm-hmm. you know, I was obviously going to make that movie controversial, mm-hmm. but it feels hard to be shaken by that mm. today anymore. I don't know. Like there were parts of it that like I had to remind myself sort of for muscle memory that that's something that was button pushing in, in 95, I felt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we should note the Columbine doesn't happen until I think it's 98, mm-hmm. but there was another school shooting in 1997 and that's when this film became very controversial and there, there were actual lawsuits brought by relatives of the murder victims who named this film in trying to build a case against that. So anyway, there was actual sort of historical dialogue involving sort of whether these films are connected to school shootings. Right. No, exactly. No, I mean, I remember the reason people told me not to watch it was that, right? Really? Yeah, I think so. I I think it became in some ways more controversial for that. Interesting. For the male hustling and the you know, pedophile coach and prostitutes and all that stuff, the drugs. That's interesting. I'm wondering, and I I can't say this for sure, but they call that the Streisand effect, right? When something, oh no, that's when you try to not talk about something and in trying to not talk about it, just catapult it to greater prominence. The connection I'm trying to make is like, did those lawsuits about the school shootings actually bring this movie to greater prominence? And I would hypothesize that they probably did, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that the soundtrack was pretty crucial to this movie's cultural Mm. dissemination. Like you see PJ Harvey on here. There are some original songs by Jim Carroll himself. There's a song by Patti Smith. Like I remember these songs sort of like in the water of this phase of the 90s and very much providing a sort of soundtrack beyond just the film. Like this this was a cool soundtrack to own you know we'll definitely get to the coolest soundtrack to own in our part two of the retrospective which is obviously the romeo and juliet soundtrack the single greatest soundtrack of the 1990s but i think the basketball diaries has a musical relationship as well yeah the pedophile coach was someone who i wanted to talk about especially as we were talking about the de niro characters possible sort of sublimated homo rage in this boy's life like what do you make of that pedophile coach character to my mind that's one of the most kind of like emotionally gruesome hard to watch parts of the movie but how does it sit with you no absolutely i think it's i think it's extremely hard to watch what do i expect you to say to that you're like no i loved that yeah, part best, like... best, uh, entire movie. no i mean 
what it made me think <laughs> is it feels like on a meta level, right? Like the way DiCaprio becomes kind of a victim of male violence in a lot of these early movies from, you know, De Niro in This Boy's Life to in The Queen of the Dead, the kid believes Hackman to be his father and gets yeah. killed by Gene Hackman yes. to this, right? Like, yeah, he, he basically is always on the receiving end of abuse. Yeah. And it always gives him kind of an excuse to kind of act the shit out of the part. It all feels like someone trying to shed a pretty boy matinee idol status, even though he didn't have that status at the time. It feels like he's mm-hmm. trying to live down Titanic mm-hmm. before making Titanic. It's really kind of striking, right? That he kind of makes these moves. And I think this is kind of, this is why my comparison with Jennifer Lawrence happened earlier, right? That like, totally. she's the same way that like, she starts as though she has to live something down and then does the thing that she, that traditionally one might do in order to, like that Johnny <laughs> Depp did to live yes. down 21 Jump Street or yeah. that, you know, Jared Leto will spend just so much wasted celluloid trying to live down Jordan Catalano, right? I love that comparison. It's yeah. funny that like Leo kind of does all these things mm-hmm. independent. Like it, it feels like someone trying to like live down having been like, what is I called? A musketeer for like, for Disney or whatever. But he wasn't, he was never, he was no such yes, thing. Totally. Well, he wasn't, but remember he was on Growing Pains and he had other child actor roles. So he is trying to live down some of that stuff. For like... For like the season that no one watched, you know. Speak for yourself, sir. Some of us watched the season after he became famous and wanted to find more material of his to watch. <laughs> but, that, but that's my point. I feel like totally. it is a funny, it might just be saying something about how youth roles in Hollywood were just kind of aged up child roles, right? That like in some way yes. he was kind of unique, right? Like that he mm-hmm. didn't have a whole body of work, unlike Elijah Wood or someone like that, right? That followed him around. If you think of something like The Good Son, which which is all like child actors like trying to prove they have range. Yeah. Which, spoiler alert, they do not. Mm-hmm. Dude, I will say, sidebar to the chronology of our Leo discussion, this research has made me obsessed with Tobey Maguire's failure to launch and like how haunted he must be by like his bestie's success. I think there's a very like kind of Beyonce and Kelly dynamic that goes on between oh. Leo and Toby. He's the fetch of 90s actors. He is totally the fetch of 90s. It's just not gonna fucking happen. Stop trying to make him happen. So like, but yeah. like you look at, whatever, I'm gonna have to pull up his IMDb to talk about this, but... But I already said Leo and Toby meet on the audition circuit as child actors. They happen to both have single mothers. I think this is part of their early bond. Then I have to believe the reason Toby is cast in a minor role in this boy's life has to do with Leo. Like, I strongly suspect there's a causal link there, even though I don't have evidence for it. Then you see them reunite in Don's Plum, which we'll talk about in a second, which makes very clear that they hang out all the time in this sort of like greater pussy posse of Hollywood. Then eventually they reunite on screen in 2013's The Great Gatsby, directed right. by who? Baz Luhrmann. It's Baz Luhrmann, and, shit, of course. Yeah. yeah. So who do you think introduced Baz Luhrmann to Tobey Maguire? Right. You know, like... So you see, whatever, I, again, I'm speaking out of my ass. I do not have evidence for this, but I strongly believe that these two actors' fates have been sort of intertwined since the beginning and that Leo's fate was always better looking and brighter, you know? And I wonder how that factors into their friendship and what they talk about. The other thing, though, about McGuire is he has this kind of placidity mm-hmm. that makes him kind of a bad victim. And one of the things that, like, Leo in all his roles is good at having shit happened to him that allows Leo to like be excruciated yeah to just like yeah to just go mm-hmm. fucking nuts right like I mean uh, right down to the fucking bear right like in, uh, in Revenant yes where he will finally win his Academy Award yes yeah I mean like he basically just like it's Leo clawing at his face I mean like <laughs> think of like the martyrdom and all those mm-hmm. Scorsese movies right like Shutter Island which we're not going to talk about but like it's all about sort of male hysteria until they give him mm-hmm. the fucking Oscar right that doesn't work for Tony McGuire right Mm-mm. like he's very sort of placid in the ice storm and really kind of reactive and kind of a good focalization figure but like it's not flashy no it's a very quiet inert role yeah the cider house rules right like plays on his kind of a deadpan Mm -hmm. the wonder boys plays on his deadpan Mm -hmm. and so i think that there is a kind of element there of as you said he cannot be excruciated in a way that like leo offers himself as like 
tortured masculinity from the get-go and mcguire just doesn't offer Mm -hmm. himself for that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no and nor does he offer himself to the sort of like street tough role that comprises the rest of dicaprio's friend group in basketball diaries right like toby mcguire is nowhere near mark Wahlberg in terms of like believability of a kid you know running the streets of manhattan looking for heroin right you know can we talk about the weirdest intersection between these two guys please didn't they in successive Woody Allen movies play basically surrogates for Woody Allen? Or am I wrong about that? Oh, which movies? Wasn't McGuire in Deconstructing Harry? And I thought that Leo was not Celebrity. Am I wrong about that? I'm looking it up. Leo was definitely in Celebrity. I'm looking up Tobey Maguire. And Celebrity was the first movie that Leo filmed after Titanic, but not the first one that came out. Ah, okay. Let's see. Yes, he is in Deconstructing Harry. Yes. Yeah, he, he plays basically a character written by the Alan character, but the whole point of Deconstructing Harry is that this Alan figure, played by Alan, is putting too much of himself on screen. Mm-hmm. Which, sidebar, and people are like, when it comes to the whole Dylan Farrow question, people are like, well, you have to separate the work and the man. It's like, oh, barf in my mouth. You know who doesn't separate the work and the man? is the man. So the whole examination of like how you can't do that. So it feels a bit cheap to call for that now. But anyway, so I think those movies sort of came out in subsequent years, or in years following mm-hmm. each other, right? Right around the same time. And I will also say that what you were just saying about like do we separate the art from the man kind of eternal question is the most perfect possible segue to Don's Plum. Okay, so let me start here. Yes, please. Do you know anything about Don's Plum? I know of it. I have never seen it, to be honest. I know that it is a movie that was filmed that kind of jumps around our chronology in that it was filmed before and yes. Yes. Most of the movies that we're talking about. So its chronology is very complicated, but yes. And then it it comes out in, not just after Titanic, it comes out in the 2000s, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. So I'm so excited to talk about this. I have had such a journey. So Don's Plum is the sort of hidden track in the compilation album of our retrospective. I didn't see, it's not on IMDb, right? Or it is on IMDb now, but like, it's not known in the DiCaprio canon very widely because it didn't have a traditional release. And we'll talk about why. So first to your question about when it was filmed, I can't find exact dates, but this was filmed over something like six days in 1995 to 1996. I think it's filmed maybe right after he films Romeo and Juliet and just before he leaves to film Marvin's Room. And it's definitely filmed before Romeo and Juliet comes out, which is, I think, a crucial point. So Don's Plum is an indie movie that is extremely low budget. It's shot in black and white. It is aggressively artsy in its cinematography. Like, there's a very stylized dance scene in the first seven minutes that like comes out of absolutely nowhere and connects to absolutely nothing. It was written and acted ad-libbed, essentially. Like, it's entirely improvised. Uh, you're really selling this to me. I, I gotta check this no, out. No, it is not a good movie. What I will end no. this with Ooh. is the movie that you should watch instead of watching Don's Plum. So, Ooh. to get the same kind of bearing on that era. So, Don's Plum is a bad movie. Like, it does not hang together in its construction at all. And I think what happened was a group of pussy posse adjacent filmmakers were like fucking around trying to make a short film in that like you know time honored way of like my friends and I are so brilliant we should just record everything we sit around and say at a diner every night it very much has like that feel and because they didn't have a podcast enter Don's plot exactly yes (laughs) good point um So important to note is it was originally conceived as a short film, and what at least Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire, who both appear in the film, say that they agreed to was they say that they agreed to appear in a short film. There is a ton of dispute over what happened next, some of which is on the record and some of which isn't, but basically... The filmmakers behind it, it's directed by a guy named R.D. Robb, and it is produced by a guy named Dale Wheatley, who I have emailed with. Somewhere along the way, they decided to turn what was supposed to be like a six-minute short into a feature. I think this is because Maguire and DiCaprio are getting famous and notorious, and they realize that they have something perhaps more saleable on their hands than they originally estimated. I mean, as any professor who reads six-line 
papers that get blown up to five pages, uh, I can tell you that always ends exactly. well. So it's, 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 turning a short film into totally. a movie must also be just wonderful. Totally. So, so the most interesting thing about watching this movie, and I will say you can watch it either on YouTube or by going to like just Google Don's Plum and you will come to like a holding page where you can email Dale Wheatley and he will send you a copy of the movie as he did to me. The most interesting thing about it is the sort of who's who of 90s Hollywood, which obviously includes DiCaprio and Maguire. Also, Kevin Connolly, later of Entourage fame, is in there, which oh, casts a whole different light on his role in Entourage and like who's which Entourage. One is he? He's E, the manager guy. Like, oh the, god, yeah, the one who's always breaking up with. With, exactly. With yes. Oh yes. Exactly. That that show is um, aggressively bad. Anyway, it's so painful. Okay, but the best thing about Don's Plum is a young Jenny Lewis right in the early days of Rilo Kylie, and there are two like huh. Rilo Kylie songs that are on the soundtrack of this movie that she releases in later albums after this movie fails to launch. Wow. But what happens is somewhere along the journey between we're going to make a short film with our friends and holy shit, let's make this a feature and premiere it at festivals, Tobey Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio are like, fuck no. And like a huge conflict emerges between the masterminds behind this film and DiCaprio and Maguire actually sue in 1998 to block this film from ever being released. And they succeed in keeping it from ever being seen, I think until when it starts to leak in like 2001, it's released in some form. Now you can find it online, like I said, so I think people have seen it. Oh no, I'm sorry, it premiered eventually at the Berlin Film Festival in 2001. That was how it actually did premiere. Wow. But there's just been this ton of controversy behind it. And it's very clear that like DiCaprio and Maguire felt like they had something to fear in this movie. And in my research, I found that as the producers of the film were trying to appease DiCaprio and Maguire, they agreed to some edits. Like apparently there was a specific line where everybody's sitting around talking about masturbation. Like in the whole movie, it's just like teens and people in early 20-somethings sitting around a diner. Like, that is the entire substance of the plot of the film. It's just these kids ordering french fries. And they're talking about all these things and one of them is masturbation and apparently there was a line at some point that Tobey Maguire's character said about, like, sticking a finger up his ass during masturbation that Maguire went apeshit about and demanded be cut. DiCaprio's character is incredibly, like, aggressive and misogynistic and like humiliates this girl and threatens to throw a bottle at her at some point and starts hooking up with Jenny Lewis in the scene that is like a fever dream from the lost archives of like my 90s youth like a lost sex scene between Jenny Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio could have been just written by my subconscious but it turns really uncomfortable and weird and like sexist and gross so All of this adds up, and you'll just have to believe me because you haven't seen it, but, like, I can totally see why DiCaprio in particular really did not want this movie to come out because it absolutely would have interfered with his, like, budding teen heartthrob status Mm -hmm. that was about to go loco with Romeo and Juliet. And I think the timing of this movie, I want to say that he specifically blocked this movie because he didn't want to compromise Romeo and Juliet based on the timing. So... Last thing I will say, should you watch Don's Plum? I mean, I guess if you want. A movie I can actually recommend, which covers a lot of the same ground, I found almost by accident when I was researching Leonardo DiCaprio, I was like, what is this Kid 90 documentary on Hulu that Leo is suddenly executive producing? I put it on. It's on Hulu right now. You can watch this movie called Kid 90. It is a found footage documentary by Soleil Moon Fry. Do you remember her from Punky Brewster? Of course I do. So Punky Brewster herself is a fucking genius. And I was so into this movie and people should totally watch it instead of watching Don's Plum, which is like a sexist relic to nowhere. Like, I guess Soleil Moon Fry hung out with pretty much all of the same people we've just been talking about, like this whole pussy posse and pussy posse adjacent social network. She was definitely in that mix in the 90s. And I guess she just took a video camera with her everywhere. And so the movie is just a pastiche of her found footage. But Leo's in it. Toby's in it. Like Kevin's in it. So many other people are in it. You find out she lost her virginity to Charlie Sheen, for Christ's sake. Like, oh my God. so many 90s who's who people are in this film. Apparently, she's really good friends with Brian Austin Green. Wow. Going way back. Anyway, so my official recommendation is watch Don's Plum, if you will. But if you want insight on the 90s that has perhaps a more feminist framing, 
I would actually unreservedly recommend Kid Night on Hulu by Soleil Moonfry, who is really smart. And I thought she brought a lot of really interesting perspective to bear on this era. Mm. If, if you're thinking about it because you're listening to this podcast. Well, so we made it through our first half of Leonardo Di Retrospective. <laughs> but now we're going to enter the movies that like people probably actually remember. Obviously, we're not done. Where will we lay our scene next time, Laura? <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad you asked. Um, Obviously, we will be focusing on the libidinous surge that was the combination of Romeo and Juliet and Titanic. And that will be in our next episode, part two of the the Retrospective. Yes. So I do hope you will tune in and join us. We will be drawing Leo like one of, one one of, of our French, French girls. girls. Oh, put your hands on me, Leo. Um, I mean, this is just a preview of coming attractions. But like I did do my Titanic rewatch this past weekend. And like, dude, it hit different. Like it, I was emotionally huh. devastated. But I was as emotionally devastated by Titanic on this watch as I was in 1997 and that has not happened to me on rewatches between those two points yeah i think the mass death of the pandemic you know sharply inflected by class divisions might be the the missing link that made it emotionally devastating this time around but we'll we'll delve deeper yeah yeah i mean i'll confess right away that i i have a soft spot for james cameron in general i think that i think that there's just like there's an intensity and relentlessness to his movies that like even if they're totally daffy, mm-hmm. it's like being stuck in a very small space with a very persuasive ferret or something like that. You know, like you, you just kind of, he really knows technically how to mm-hmm, reel you mm-hmm. in. And, and, you know, afterwards you might be like, why the fuck did I just watch that? But in the moment, like it grabs you in a way, frankly, and this might be shots fired and we may need to do this in the second part of the, the retrospective in a way that frankly Buzz Luhrmann doesn't. Um, oh, Where man. I feel like Those that shit. shots fired, sir. I okay. kind of feel like that's the kind of thing that like, had its moment and and frankly i feel like gatsby makes it pretty clear that like yeah that was neat once if you take the the manic energy out of it if you take harold perrineau out of it well i want to save all of that genius for the retrospective part two but um but i do before we go want to appeal to our listeners that if you have any like fantastic leo trivia gossip back channel intel you know making of titanic making of romeo and juliet intel like basically everybody else who's a teenage girl in the 90s if there's arcane info that you want to dm us on twitter at feminist present at adrian daub at laura good please get at us we need we need all the info do it do it okay well do you feel like i have convinced you of leonardo dicaprio's career retrospective having relevance to constructions of gender and sexuality in the 90s i'm half convinced the next episode might well do it we're gonna have to nail it home with with the last two i do think i hadn't thought about the victimization and the kind of hysteria i really like your male hysteria theory yeah because there's a ton of male historian basketball diaries too yeah absolutely that feels to me like something that johnny depp also kind of flirts with but then kind of He's just Mm -hmm. too fucking quirky to ever really sell that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think Mm -hmm. Leo's mature career looks so different from Johnny Depp, where it's like, which red-faced, hyper-masculine dirtbag is Leo going to play next versus what wig will Johnny Mm -hmm. Depp don next in order to make us forget about how much of a horrible asshole he apparently is? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, I think Leo might also be a horrible asshole. Um, Right. But yes, point taken. Those are not mutually exclusive possibilities okay well i will continue trying to convince you that 1993 to 1998 is what makes a man out of leo next week awesome i look forward to it (laughs) thank you for listening join us for the retrospective part two and all our 90s episodes this is only the beginning the feminist present is co-hosted by adrian dobb and laura good it's produced by laura good and edited by megan kalfas All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. 
Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion. 